Douglas McKinnon uh, rode on the hill this weekend is a potential trap being set by seemingly loyal Republican senators. I don't even know what loyal Republican senators mean anymore. Uh, Douglas McKinnon joins us now. Hello, Doug. How are you? Glenn, thanks for having me back on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, not a problem. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. It, 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 tell me the theory here. Well, the theory is, I, I think, that, as we have talked about in the past, I, I had the high honor to work for President Reagan in the White House as well as uh, Bush won. And I think this White House, as good as they are, and I'm a supporter of the president, I think Trump is the best president since President Reagan. That said, I do believe the president and the West Wing are putting way too much faith in the Senate. And it's one of these things where I talked to two, one senior staffer and a former senior staffer up on the Hill who told me that there were a number of meetings going on behind closed doors between a number of Republican senators. You know, and the, the fear is that with the weight of history, with, and as you and I understand very, very well, even most, quote, as you just said, you know, what's a loyal Republican senator, right? Because mm-hmm. the vast majority of these Republican senators, either privately or publicly, can't stand President Trump for a lot of reasons. The main reason being, Lynn, they can't control him. They've never been able to control him. Right. They can't predict what he's going to do. And so because of that, does it make more sense for them to have someone who's part of the club become president and and someone who's part of the club who's a good guy by the way but is is vice president mike pence but mike pence is part of the club and again how easy would it be for just you only need 20 of the 53 republican senators to say wait a minute i think here's our historic opportunity to remove a president none of us like and again the conventional wisdom is the president's going to get acquitted in the senate trial it's going to be a slam dunk but my whole point is, and the point of these two staffers that I was speaking with was, let's not assume that. And as I said in the piece, too, one of President Reagan's favorite lines was, okay, let's trust but verify here. So how do you verify? Because, I, I mean, I go back and forth, Douglas, on this. I, I, I look at uh, what really happened and what really went on with the Democrats in Ukraine and this whole thing with the press. It must be exposed. With that being said, I don't I'm not sure it will be exposed because I think people like uh, uh, possibly Lindsey Graham, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Turtle face uh, in the in the uh, Senate. Yeah, McConnell. Thank you. Um, I, I, I think these guys are are wouldn't they didn't want things exposed either. They want to continue to play in the club. And they probably are dirty along the same lines as what the Repub- uh, what the Democrats have, have uh, looked like they've been up to. And uh, Donald Trump is a hand grenade, and he went off and he exposed a lot of this dirt. And I'm not sure that uh, there are people on both sides that want this to stop. Well, I, I agree with you in, in that sense, too. What I always tell people that are, that are fresh to the United States who don't understand the system, I said, amazingly, if you watch the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, yes. which was made 80 years ago, and you look at the Taylor machine and what's going on as he's controlling various members of the Senate, basically nothing has changed since the time that movie aired 80 years ago. And that's one of the things where Trump is coming in and he is the disruptor. 
what Nikki Haley, Governor Haley, said, you know, one of the reasons so many people dislike him yes. is he is a disruptor that can't be controlled. And so to your point, it's one of these things where who can you, in fact, trust? And, and, and my point and the, and the point of these stoppers is, well, don't trust anybody because ultimately there's a historic opportunity here for 20 Republican senators to change history, to invalidate the vote of 63 million Americans who voted for President Trump and to join with basically, Glenn, the deep state and, and, and create this unofficial coup and remove a legitimately and constitutionally elected president of the United States. It really is chilling. Okay, so why do you think that this has a chance of happening? Because when, when they were talking about articles of impeachment, Look at the the numbers with the people. The people are not for it. The, you know, the Democrats are even having defectors. When they started this, they said, you know, we think we could probably get, you know, 10 or 20 Republicans on board. They, 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 they couldn't even get all Democrats on board for this. Well, I mean, and that's the thing, and that's the conventional wisdom, right? And, again, the conventional wisdom says 99.9% chance, you know, the Senate's going to acquit, everyone's going to be happy. And I do, I, I do suspect that may be the case, but the whole point here is I think the Trump White House is going into this with eyes sort of, if not fully closed, somewhat squinted in terms of what's going on in the Senate, what conversations are taking place, mm. you know, who can we double-check with, and, and, and what can we be doing that we're not doing right now to protect ourselves and to protect this president? And I'm a little bit surprised that there's at least no conversation emanating from the West Wing of the White House that publicly puts these guys on notice. You know, I think that would be a smart strategy. So, Douglas, what are the things you're watching for as a political consultant? What are the things that you're watching to see if this tide is going in or out? Well, I think one of the one of the things that, that people should be paying attention to are, are what conversations are taking place. Are any conversations, you know, and, and this is where you have to have sort of insiders that are leaking some of this information uh, and, and saying, are there conversations taking place between certain senators in the West Wing? Are there, certain, are there certain conversations taking place between certain staff members in the vice president's office? I mean, there's a lot of different things that are happening beneath the scenes. And it's one of these things where this is such a unique opportunity. And as we know, you know, before, you know, President Clinton was never going to get impeached. President Nixon resigned before he could go through this. But it's a totally different dynamic, Glenn, with Donald Trump, because he is a one-man band. Washington, D.C. has never seen anyone like him in its history. He basically got elected by himself. And so for all those reasons, and to your point about this club being even whether it's Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell or others, he is a disruptor that they would if, – if, if it was a perfect world, as we both know, Glenn – and if they could just flip a switch and make him disappear, they would. They would do it tomorrow. Yeah, they would. Um, all right. Um, let me switch subjects with you because I know you have a new book and I didn't even, you know, you're not on to talk about it, but I wanted to talk about it. Um, you have a new book out, uh, The North Pole Project in Search of the True Meaning of Christmas. Can you tell me about it? Sure. Yeah. It's just people tend to be walking away from Christmas left and right, and people tend to be forgetting about just the Christmas spirit and what does it mean. And so the story is basically about a multi-billionaire who lost his way in life. He ended up getting, you know, the trophy wipes and all these things, and he's got $54 billion, and, he, and all of a sudden he's 50 years old, and he's totally lost in life. And he's sitting in his 35-room mansion by himself one day, contemplating doing the worst, 
when he gets a call from his minister brother in Texas who says, what is wrong with you, Christian? You have to try to save yourself. And this, and this, 54, this, this 50-year-old billionaire, when he was a child with his brother living on an army base, he used to collect money to give presents to the other poor children on the army base. And his minister brother says, Christian, become that person again. Become Santa Claus all over again. And so this billionaire literally decides to recreate the North Pole and Santa's workshop on the North Pole. And, and not only does he do that, Glenn, but he recruits people from all over the world as his quote-unquote elves, who they themselves are going through the, some of the worst that life has to offer. And they are sort of healed by joining this project. And together, these people change the lives for the better of over 500,000 orphans around the world. So that's, is this... Is this a story that can be read with your kids, but is kind of like Harry Potter, can be read by an adult and enjoyed, but also a little older kids, too? 100%. It's one of these things where people, we're getting emails now from people that are exactly doing that. Every night they're reading one chapter with their families out loud because it's, it's, it really is sort of reinvigorating the Christmas spirit in all of them, and that's what makes me the proudest. And, and for me, I didn't take a dime for this book, by the way, Glenn, and everything goes to charity. That's great. Douglas McKinnon, thank you so much. I appreciate it. The name of the book is The North Pole Project, uh, and his uh, article, which I think is is um, possibly right on the mark, is a trap being set for Trump in the Senate trial, is available at the Hill. Thanks so much, Douglas McKinnon. Um, thank you, Glenn. You bet. Uh, I will tell you that um, uh, we are ge- we're getting to a point to where kids don't read books anymore. Uh, and even my son has slowed down on books. And my son was a faster reader than I am. I mean, he could finish a novel in a day and a half. Uh, he, he would race through books uh, and just loves to read and has you know, now that he's in school, has slowed down on his reading, and I hate it. I hate it. Um, I didn't like to read when I was a kid, Um, but you have to find the right book. And, you know, I didn't grow up in a family that was reading to us or anything else. And so I read the first book I ever read when I was, what, 18, and living on my own was Sherlock Holmes. And I read it just for fun. And it was the first book that I really read for fun. And I probably read it three times because I thought no book could be this good. And then I uh, started just reading all kinds of other things and loved it. And reading is just tremendous if you find the right book. And I I start to read a lot of books and don't finish a lot of books because it's like, okay, it's not worth, not worth pursuing any more than this because I... I like this, but I don't love it. And uh, and I I just urge you to read to your kids and um, get some books for Christmas. Um, I told you yesterday about this Freedom Series that you can get it at Libraries of Hope. Uh, I think it's librariesofhope.com. Or what, what was the address? Let me look it up. It was... Uh, no, that's the old address. Anyway, they're, they're the Freedom Series. And if you just Google Libraries of Hope and Freedom Series, you'll be able to find the website that they're at. But they're great, and they're the old stories of of America and our founding and our principles. And they're just a whole – there's lists and lists of great books that are all of the um, 
uh, original stories. You can find them at welleducatedheart.com, welleducatedheart.com. If you've never read any of my stories, uh, you know what's weird, Stu, is Christmas sweater is catching on a second time, but like in Europe. I'm seeing, really? Yeah, I'm seeing all these um, posts from Poland and uh, I don't think the Ukraine um, and Hungary and all of these countries right behind that were right behind the Iron Curtain. Um, it's like taking off again in hmm. in those languages, which is strange and odd. They used I to think. have a collection of all the different languages it was printed in. Yeah, it was remember like that? Twenty different languages, yeah, I think. That's bizarre. Yeah, um, um, but yeah. the Christmas sweater. If you've never read the Christmas sweater, that is. Um, Based on my childhood and uh, my experience, uh, someday I want to rewrite it because I don't like the the ending. I was it was the first novel I read and or I wrote. What? Every time you bring this book up, you have to talk about how you don't like the ending of your own book. Every single freaking time you bring up the Christmas sweater for the last ten years, I don't like you it. talk about how you don't like the ending to the book. I, Everybody I, else does. I don't. It okay, was, yeah. leave it at that. Uh, and uh, also, there's another uh, book out of mine that is uh, Christmas called The Snow Angel. Mm. I wrote that uh, for my sisters. If you know somebody who uh, struggles with their dad, it would be a uh, it might be a good Christmas present called The Snow Angel. Uh, and my favorite Christmas story that uh, I've written is um, the uh, what is it? Yeah, the Immortal Nicholas. What is it? Because <laughs> I couldn't remember. I, I I knew it was Immortal, but then they made me change the title, Immortal Nicholas. So you don't like the title of that book, and you don't yeah. like the ending of the other one. Yeah, but I like Got the it. story of mm-hmm. uh, the Immortal. The Immortal Nicholas is uh, my attempt. I wrote it for my children, and it is my attempt to find a way to bring Christ back into Christmas and to uh, explain the origins of Santa and so the main character is Agios, who is living at the time of the birth of Christ. And how does this guy uh, become the immortal Nicholas? Uh, and it takes all of the traditions of Christmas and explains all of them and makes everything Christ-centered. Uh, and it's, a gr- it's my favorite story. Uh, I worked on it, worked on it, worked on it for years, retelling the story to my kids over and over and over again and adjusting it uh, until we got it just right. And I, I, I love it. It's the immortal Nicholas, and it's great for your family, especially Christmas time. But honestly, good anytime. Are you uh, nervous about uh, the OK sign, like everyone else is in the country? Well, uh, no, not at all. In fact, I'm really hacked off. Is is the Navy that is? Uh, yeah, doing the Army the Navy Im- game. The other. Stop mm-hmm. it! Stop it! It's ridiculous. And you know, again, they all admit that this is not even real. It's not a white power symbol. It is only. It was used and created for this. Um, as a joke by like 4chan, the message board, who said, you know, we should screw with the media and make it seem like the OK sign is the white power symbol and eventually they'll believe it. They are. They know they're the victim of this. And yet they still continue to do it. And now we have a situation where, think about this, 
we've got two random cadets who gave the okay sign and are under investigation. Where under investigation, where people like you know Elon Omar will come out and 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 say blatantly anti-Semitic things, and no one seems to care. You have uh, Rashida Tlaib tweeting about uh, about a situation where she's blaming murders on white supremacists. When it finds out, it's it, we wind out finding out that it's black Israelites that were yeah. you know who, who had committed the murders. We have, uh, by the way, the black Israelites were part of the uh, uh, the shoutdown. On the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. With Covington, remember, yeah. We talked mm-hmm. about them. We've talked about the black Israelites for a long time. They're a very bad group. You also have a guy running uh, for Congress in California who is wildly, wildly anti-Semitic and racist. And it doesn't seem like they ever have to... Like, has Rashida Tlaib doesn't even have to comment Don't on have it. To she just deletes the tweet and no one ever asks her about yep. it. I mean, think about the media for a second. I'm fascinated by this one. I keep coming back to it in my head. The idea that... This whole thing with James O'Keefe, where he has this uh, leaker from inside of, what was it, ABC? Mm-hmm. Um, and had all this these tapes came out. And then they called over to CBS, where the person supposedly now worked, got her fired. She's fired. She was not responsible for the leaks. They do this interview. Megan Kelly does an interview with, with the woman, who outlines the whole story. At no point is are any of the networks required to even comment on it. They don't have to come out and explain themselves. They don't have to say that they nope. are have a Me Too violation. They nope. victimized this poor woman who was working there and did nope. nothing wrong. Nope. They don't have to do anything. They never have to answer for anything. The right must have a credible news source. An Associated Press needs to be formed. You're listening to Glenn Beck. Hello, America. Welcome to the Glenn Beck Program. Uh, Looks like Mitch McConnell says it's not the Senate's job to get to guilty. Uh, The House wanted uh, evidence and witnesses. They should have found them, should have called them, should have found the uh, the evidence. We're not calling witnesses in the Senate. So there doesn't look like there's going to be a trial. Um, It looks like it's just going to be either an up or down vote to toss it out or acquit the president. They should acquit the president uh, if that's their choice of not calling any witnesses. They, they've got to vote to do that. Otherwise, you know, anything could happen and they could bring this back up again. So all these charges would go away if he was acquitted of it and you couldn't do it a second time. I mean, it's incredible. It does seem like it's what the White House prefers. Uh, at least, uh, you know, well, I guess we'll see if Trump comes up with an angry tweet about how he can't get his witnesses. Well, maybe we'll know the opposite, but uh, all indications are from both sides that they're working together on the plan here. And maybe Trump is just deciding, look, you know, we can go down this road, but I'd rather get it over with and move on with my life and and move into the election time and and, and not be focusing on impeachment, which I certainly understand. I just uh, it's frustrating because there's so much here to go into that the American people need to know about. And without, I think the Senate trial, I don't think they ever will. I mean, you know, you'll, you'll have some people who will know it from actually doing their own research, but I don't think as far as the, you know, large swath, of the American public and voters are ever going to really know the truth of this thing, which is, uh, horrendous and puts us in a very difficult situation moving forward in my opinion. Um, but, 
it's interesting the game that Chuck Schumer was playing with uh, with uh, Mitch McConnell because the House hasn't even voted yet. So they're going to vote tomorrow, which probably will end up being Thursday or at least Wednesday night. Um, and uh, they haven't voted. So why was Chuck Schumer pushing for certain people to be called? And now Mitch McConnell folds to that and says, we're not going to call anybody. Well, does that give the House an excuse not to pass the articles of impeachment? Does it give an out to some Democrats who will say, you know, they're not going to do anything with it anyway. Mitch McConnell just said they won't. So what's the point? That's probably what their argument will be, right? I mean, they're going to probably say, hey, this is uh, this is just the Senate defending the president. Mm-hmm. Here's Mitch McConnell's quote. He said he was working with the president. And they're just this is just a scam. Um, it does bail them out, I think, in some ways, in that they don't have to actually go through this process. But, you but know, they should. Okay, so let me let me bring you let me bring you to this. Um, there is um, and this could always change. We should point out too. This is what they're reporting right now. But you know, who knows at this point? Let me let me just see. And I don't know if I can read um, all of this because it's quite long. But it's an apology letter to Richard Jewell. And it's from a, a member or former member of uh, CNN. And uh, he writes, Dear Richard, I owe you an apology. Writing an apology is not something journalists are used to doing. It took me years just to open a document and type those few words. But with the release of Richard Jewell, Clint Eastwood's new movie about the aftermath of the 96 bombing in Atlanta's Centennial Olympic Park, those of us who reported the story are doing a fresh round of soul searching. No one emerged from the coverage with glory, although Jewell certainly deserved to. I'm one of the reasons he didn't. Jewel might not have been the first victim, might have been the first victim of the 24-hour cable news cycle. He went from hero to villain in less than three days. Jewel was working security in Centennial Olympic Park when he discovered a backpack containing a bomb and alerted law enforcement. The bomb exploded and soon so did his life after the FBI decided that he was the suspect and the media piled on. If Jewel was the first, it would only get worse. Cable news accelerated the pace, but social media made the rush to judgment instantaneous, as quick as machine trading on Wall Street, but without any circuit breakers. Think of that. And they're right. He might have been the first, but it has gotten much, much worse. Think of what the media has done in this whistleblower case, in this this whole thing about... Uh, Trump and Russia, it's turning out it's all lies, all lies. Uh, Our assignment desk said there had been an explosion during a concert at Centennial Park across the street from our offices at CNN. By the time I made it downstairs, it was clear from sources and witnesses that there had been a bomb. The blast killed one one woman, injured 111. A cameraman died of a heart attack as he rushed over to cover the explosion. These days, we would call it an IED. In more innocent days, the murder weapon was called a pipe bomb. 
During a news conference in those very early hours, someone from the Georgia State Patrol mentioned the security guard named Richard Jewell had spotted the backpack and alerted law enforcement. He seemed to be the hero of the story. It turned into a, I turned to my guest booker and asked her, track him down. By that evening, we had had our man. Less than 24 hours after the bombing, Jewell and his mother arrived at CNN. He was flustered. Traffic in the area had been heavy, and they had to rush the last several blocks. Newt Gingrich, the House Speaker, and Sam Nunn were also in the newsroom. Both wanted to shake his hand and thank thank him for being a hero. Even before he sat down on the set, Jewell was distracted by the attention. The interview I had pushed for offset... Um, and set off the chains, uh, chain of events that led to what Jewel later described as 88 days of hell. A former employer of Jewel's, the president of a college, North Georgia, was watching and called the FBI. He wanted the bureau to know that Jewel had worked for him and that he had been forced to resign. Agents in the FBI Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico were also paying attention. They wondered why Jewel looked uncomfortable and his eyes shifted around. He seemed suspicious. There may not have been there's something that Maxine Waters might say, I know, in my heart, I will always know he did it. There may not have been considered uh, that this was Jules' first TV interview and that it was being done remotely. He was hearing questions from an anchor in Washington through an earpiece. They were too busy thinking about Jimmy Wade Pearson, the guy during the Los Angeles Olympics in 84. Pearson was a police officer who claimed to have found a bomb on a bus carrying uh, carrying luggage for Turkish athletes. Pearson later admitted planting the device so he could be the hero of his own story. Jewell had been a sheriff's deputy before working security at the college, and he had moved to Atlanta hoping to boost his career. His stint in law enforcement had not been without controversy. If you were an FBI profiler, you could make all of this look sinister, and they did. A colleague and I interviewed him again on the next night for a special report. And after he turned off the cameras, Jewel casually mentioned that he wouldn't be surprised, based on his training, if he was considered a suspect. He said that's just the way it worked. He implied until you found the culprit, everyone in proximity, especially the guy who discovered the bomb, was in the frame. The world's media already gathered in Atlanta, 20,000 of us by some counts. The FBI was under intense pressure to solve this case and solve it quickly. Agents were chasing down dozens of leads, trying to figure out who had been near the bench and who made the 911 call. The bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes, said the caller. The FBI called Jewel to the Atlanta field office on Tuesday afternoon, pretending they were making a training tape. He was the hero, so they wanted his help. No need to bring a lawyer. They were going to lead him in, lead him on, and spring their trap. As they were trying to trick him into a confession, Free called Atlanta and told the agents in the room to read Jewel his rights. The agents made the situation worse by pretending that giving him his Miranda rights was part of the training tape. Law enforcement sources were already telling journalists that Jewel was under investigation even before he made it to the FBI for his interview. Several of us were meeting in the offices of CNN's president to discuss how we would report the news. Should we call him a suspect or the more cautious person of interest? That's when Johnson got a call from the editor of the Atlanta Journal saying the paper was about to put out a special edition naming Jewel as the bombing suspect. That's when things went off the rail. Instead of going with a more neutral language language we favored, Johnson had the anchors on set hold up the front page of the journal and read the headlines. By the time Jewel's lawyer heard the news, 
He had managed to get through to the FBI switchboard to his client, and he told him, get out of the field office. The collective weight of law enforcement and the media had already begun turning Jewel from hero to a villain. Think of that. Mm. Think of that. This was 1996, the dawn of the Internet age, so the process took some time. Um, He goes on, later we did a story that same week showing that under the FBI's timeline of the body, of the bombing, Jewel couldn't have made the warning call to 9-11. By then, though, it didn't matter. The media was camped out in front of Jewel's apartment. Every time he went somewhere, he was followed by an absurd caravan of FBI agents and cameras. It was relentless, and it was wrong. Richard Jewell was not the Olympic Park bomber. Despite the innuendo and FBI leaks that he was their man, Jewell was never charged. Now think of this. Despite of the innuendo that is happening on the, in the media and the FBI leaks that he was their man, does any of this sound familiar? Even though he was never charged, he was still the suspect. Eventually, there were more bombings using similar devices outside a gay nightclub and an abortion clinic in Atlanta and Birmingham. Police officer was killed. A nurse was maimed. The real culprit was finally identified more than a year later. He was a Christian terrorist who hated the New World Order, abortion, and the Olympics. But as soon as Eric Robert Rudolph was named, he disappeared into the mountains. The happiest I ever saw, Richard Jewell, was April 13th, 2005, the day Rudolph pleaded guilty in federal court in Atlanta to the Olympics bombing. Jewell was smiling before the hearing, looking fit in the company of his wife. He had never gotten the proper recognition for his heroism after those first few days, but his lawyers negotiated settlements from NBC, CNN, the New York Post, Piedmont College, and uh, whose president had called the FBI. But he got nothing from the journal Constitution, which argued that its reporting, like ours, had been correct at the time and that Jewell was a public figure thanks to interviews he had done for us at CNN. And therefore, he faced a tougher standard for suing for defamation. I didn't say sorry when I left Jewell that April day. We simply exchanged greetings. I saw him a year later at a training exercise for law, uh, local law officers. He was back on the job as a sheriff's deputy and friendly, even though he went cold when he saw an FBI agent in attendance. A couple of days later, I sat at the computer. I started my letter of apology. I got frustrated and hit save. A year after that, Jewel died. After months of failing health, my letter remained unfinished and unsent. So how do I make sense of all this three, uh, these years later? when I have an Emmy on my shelf for my coverage in those first 24 hours. We in the media got it wrong. Even though our reporting was right, there's a paradox. Jewel wasn't the FBI's main suspect. Yes, the FBI has a lot to answer for, but this is about our responsibility. Suppose that CNN had been more nuanced and called Jewel a person of interest. Our repetitive and relentless coverage would still have made it look like the authorities thought he was the culprit. In my own reporting, I've learned to be more skeptical of sources, especially when they claim to speak for the government, especially at its highest levels. My stories these days don't go on air without relentless fact-checking, and my scripts have more footnotes than any term paper I did in college. But the lesson is, that isn't always enough. It's how you report it and how everyone else is reporting it, too. 
Someone else's guilty plea and several court settlements didn't give Jewel his good name back. Maybe the film finally will. And next time, I will own up to my responsibility. I will finish that letter, letter because it's never too late to apologize. Hmm. An open letter from a CNN staffer to Richard Jewell. I wonder if anyone at CNN is reading this, including the author, and seeing the similarities of what they've done with FBI sources telling them incorrect information and going after their guy because they know he's guilty. There is a uh, there's a new focus group uh, report out on uh, voters um, that were taken in crucial Democratic uh, states and strongholds. And what they found is any swing voters who voted for Barack Obama and then Donald Trump, they may have been holding their nose then, but it appears as though they are firmly back in the Donald Trump camp. It's an amazing study. Um, and they only studied those who had flipped from Obama to Trump. And the focus groups that happened just a year ago, they were saying they were tired of Donald Trump and his annex and everything else. Now it looks like they are going to vote for Donald Trump and it doesn't look like anything's going to sway them. Uh, they hate the fact that the House Democrats are moving towards impeaching the president. Uh, they say it's a distraction from things that would actually help their lives. And they are pro-Trump now, firmly. You're listening to Glenn Beck.